Welcome back to Twins Talk TV, The Peripheral. This week we will be covering episode six, Fuck You and Eat Shit. Best episode title ever. Absolutely. This is Beep. You can find me on Twitter or more likely at this point on Hive at Beepsplain. And I am joined by Mick. And you can find me on both Twitter and Hive and Mastodon at MickNick1291. But seriously, still good luck with that Mastodon search. (laughs) Yeah, good luck with that. So this week's episode, hey, we got Bob back. I'm not sure that that matters, but he's sure here. Yeah, I mean, he's here. He's a presence. He takes time on screen. All right. Well, let's definitely get to him way later. We start off in the Texas Outback in 2028, which by our timeline is four years ago. And we get to see what Grace was explaining the whole time when she and Alita were in the Godfont room, if you will. Yes. And apparently, like, some civil war broke out and, like, Texas decided to secede or something. (laughs) Shocking. (laughs) Because Texas be a war zone. (laughs) But yeah, we see Burton and his crew in the military. They're up on a ridge. I'm not going to lie. It looks like their budget was really low because it looks like they were just in, like, a landfill. (laughs) (laughs) That's totally fair. The guys are just laying on the edge of it, all with guns drawn. They've been waiting for two weeks, no sniper fire. They're bored, but they see this dog down at the bottom of this hill they're on top of. The edge of the landfill, one might say. (laughs) And the dog is trapped in barbed wire, and it's just whining and crying. And they've gotten intel that the enemy is going to use animals in distress to lure them out into the open. And Burton's like, there's an easy answer to this, but none of them can pull the trigger. And poor Leon is having like a mental breakdown over hearing this dog crying. It is so sad. And I don't think I could do it either. I, I couldn't. But we also know that they've been having their brains screwed with and have their compassion centers all jacked up. But I swear, even if that wasn't true... We know exactly who's not going to be able to help himself, and that's freaking Connor. He kind of cockily is like, oh, I'm just going to go down there. And he just runs down there. And they're, like, freaking out. And at one point, like, one of them spots some movement in the trees. And, like, they all freak out. And, like, Connor hits the deck, and it's just a bird. But Connor makes his way down there. And when he gets there, he cuts the dog free. And, uh uh-oh, there is some sort of device on the dog's collar and as the dog turns over he sees that it goes into the dog's stomach that has been cut open and like stapled shut because they put a bomb inside of a dog like fucking psychopaths i could not watch that again to discuss it that makes me absolutely sick to my stomach when it rolled over and like had those staples in in its gut i was just like you have got to be kidding me Yeah, I was not a fan of that. So not only do they have like a bomb near the dog, the bomb was literally in the dog. Disgusting. And then the thing happens. And obviously that's how we got the Connor we have today. Yeah, the thing happens. It's disturbing. We don't like talking about it. So we're going to move on and we're going to jump back to present day 2032 where Connor wakes up from this flashback nightmare. And Burton runs over to him and is like, bud, you're not there anymore. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. And he's just comforting his friend. Which is good to see between them when we have seen so many very much like leader soldier interactions. So I like when we get to see them as just Burton and Connor. Next we go to what we can assume is 2100 (laughs) because it's not North Carolina. It is most assuredly not North Carolina, nor is it a landfill from Texas. Nope. It is some cliffs and a beautiful green field. And there is a lady walking with her dog. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, this chick named Beatrice interrupts and basically is like, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt because the lady is like, oh, you're interrupting my daily constitutional, which means something different to me. Isn't that like going to the bathroom? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Okay, I was like, wait, what? But that's all right. Perhaps she meant for the dog. (laughs) Maybe they wear diapers in the future. But basically, Beatrice 
gives this lady who we learn is Ansley Lobier, who's an inspector for the Metropolitan Police. Beatrice gives her the rundown that there was a recent disturbance at RI. There's been a murder in Sackville Street involving a peripheral and a coid. And the victim of said murder is R.I.'s head of security, Daniel Cook. Oh, Daniel. We must pour one more out for Daniel. (laughs) Poor Daniel. Got murdered by his boss. So this is what I know. I don't like spoilers or whatever, but just in general, I have heard from book people that low beer is actually very important. Cool. You can see that in this episode. I feel like at the very least, she's going to become like a huge foil for what's going on but that that character is very important. And then I just wanted to say, I really liked Beatrice and the way that she interacted with Lobier. Like she was so just like on top of their discussion and what she was allowed to say and when she was allowed to talk. And I just thought the actress did a great job. She did such a good job because at one point Lobier is like, oh, I know Daniel. And she's like, ma'am, I believe new would be the proper. Yeah, it's fantastic. (laughs) I love all of these like big bads with their little lackeys who (laughs) are slightly antagonistic to them. The future likes a little antagonism. It does. And that's okay. As Lobier gets this download of information from Beatrice, She's like, well, I guess we get we should get to work. And it turns out that she was just walking laps on a rooftop in a simulation. Yeah. So that lends more to your theories about, I mean, obviously there are parts, and especially we find that out in this episode, that there are parts of this world that are very much real, but they use a lot of technology to make it not as real. Yeah. And then also, obviously, it's more of an AR thing at that point. I mean, they're changing the world around her. She's really just like walking around the top of a circular building. But, you know, obviously instead it's like the hills of Scotland. Well, as Lobier and Beatrice get to work, we cut back to 2032 at the police station where Tommy, looking like he just got dragged behind a vehicle, is asking the receptionist Gladys for information on the evidence he collected, a.k.a. the invisible cars. But apparently there's no record of them. And he's like, well, he's like, can you give me the keys and just let me check the lot? And she's like, whoa, buddy, chain of custody. I can't let you do that. If you want to do that, you got to take it up with the sheriff. She thinks he's on crack. <laughs> she's yeah, like, she uh, thinks that he is on drugs. <laughs> she's like, are you literally asking me right now where your invisible cars disappeared to? <laughs> I have no time for this. Tommy, God love him, is going to get himself killed. I cannot deal with it. If he survives the end of this season, I will be very surprised. I need I need him to. So we'll stay on Tommy injury watch. We're not yet moving to Tommy death watch. Yeah, we're going Tommy injury watch. As Gladys is like, you're on crack, you fucking psycho. His nose starts to gush blood. (laughs) And so he uh, rushes to the bathroom and is cleaning himself up when none other than the sheriff walks in. And this sheriff is just like the kind of person you just want to punch in the face. He's so smarmy, right? Like, just Yeah, he's just smarmy and gross. And I just, ooh, I don't like him. Yeah, he creeps me out. I didn't like him before I learned there was a reason not to like him. There you go. I'm, I felt the same way. I thought he was very just like, there. I, there's just something about him. I can't even explain it. He walks in with a newspaper of all the cliche things to do, you smarmy motherfucker. You walk <laughs> into the bathroom with a newspaper. Then, as they had asked the week before on the live watch, and you said you were not going to devote any manpower or brain power to it, we see a very distinct pair of boots. Because Mr. Sheriff was apparently responsible or at least involved in Tommy being hit and Bob being taken because he was the one standing outside once the car flipped over a billion times. So first thing that happens is the sheriff walks in and is like, oh, Tommy, you look like shit. How about you take a paid leave of absence because I don't want you to get burnt out. And Tommy's like, no, sir, I like need it's my like, it's my case. I lost a suspect. You know, I, I got it. He's like, no, take a leave of absence, motherfucker. Seriously. And then he's like, well, I got to use the bathroom and walks into the stall with his newspaper, flips open the newspaper because he's going to sit there for 45 minutes taking a shit, apparently. 
And Tommy glances back as he starts whistling an obnoxious tune and sees the boots that we saw in the last episode. So presumably the invisible cars are missing because the sheriff absconded with the invisible cars and gave him the Corbell picket who then gave it back to the sheriff so that he could T-bone Tommy with an invisible vehicle, steal Bob and take him back to Corbell's place. So what struck me as funny is this moment from the sheriff is a lot like Corbell's it's okay. I found God the whole thing when he was going to kill those cartel guys. This guy's like, no, 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 it's okay. Take paid leave. No, no, no. I hear you. No, 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 no. It's all good. Like paid leave. I found God, whatever. Like, it's just the same thing of like, just do the thing I tell you to because I'm being shady. And I will say the actor who plays Tommy, he had his moment. He had his Emmy real moment with his reaction face when he saw the boots. Good job, actor. Bravo. For sure. I, I felt his facial expression. It was it was very pronounced, very extreme, kind of funny, but also very good. So we, we cut back to 2100 in London, where we meet up with Flynn and Wilf. As you know, the last episode ended with Flynn snapping peripheral Charisse's neck and walking out of R.I. like a motherfucking badass. <laughs> a lot happens in this episode. And by a lot, I mean kind of not. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to complain about this one as much as I complained about five. I feel like at least it has a lot more focus on the people we hear about. But I think it is fair to say we're still kind of setting up. I'm getting to the point where I want to see more stuff happen. I agree. And I was talking about this earlier. I I love that they're focused on character and stuff. And I realized the reason I got so upset about it was because it's only eight episodes. We only have, you know, two more. If I were to get a season that was like full old school 22 and this is where we were after six, I would be thrilled out of my mind that we're spending this much time on it. But unless for sure they know there's a season two and let's take it as that. Maybe that's just it. This is starting to feel pretty slow. I concur a hundred percent with that. Cause like a lot happens in the episode, but like if you think about the passage of time and like what's really happened, not a lot has happened. I found it strange and obviously we'll get there later, but that the, the boys getting their bodies is like the only thing we got up to this episode. Yeah. So Wilf in 2100 tells Flynn that he was anxious when Flynn went into RI to confront Charisse and they're on like a, like a boardwalk near a river or like near the edge of a river on a street, something. And Flynn kind of turns to him and she's like, I re- like, you're just like a normal guy. Aren't you? Like, all this crazy stuff in, in the future, it, it's just like day-to-day shit for you. And they kind of joke because she's like, you know, the future, I imagine, was this amazing place. She's like, but it's just as shitty as where I'm from. And Wolf is kind of like, well, I think it might be a little worse. <laughs> True that. Truth. And then Flynn notices, takes note of the fact that all the people on this boardwalk area are keeping like a safe distance from them and not acknowledging their existence. And she's like, why is that? Is it like a safety thing? Like for health or like what, what's going on? And he's like, Oh, and you can tell Wolf doesn't really want to tell her. He, he kind of hesitates, but he's like, no, I owe her the truth. And he's like, Oh, it's all fake. They're not really there. And he shows her some finger maneuver to turn off the augmented reality of people being on this boardwalk and all that is really there is a homeless man asleep on a bench. I don't know that I find it strange, but I definitely have questions. No, I do find it strange. I have questions about this whole finger control thing. Okay. I understood it when it was more like the haptics when they were, you know, contacting each other when they were kind of linked, but the idea that you can turn on and off holograms, AR, that kind of stuff Why would, like, everybody have access to that? Maybe it's only the elites that have access to that, and everyone else is just walking around, walking through the augmented reality images for other, for the rich folk. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But, I mean, obviously, I guess if Wilf had it, it would have just come from Lev, because he's not part of that upper echelon. But it, it just seems strange to me. Like, if anybody else was walking out there, you would just turn it off for them, too. You know, it, it seems strange that, like, everybody would have a remote. But I guess as we see, there was not really anybody out there anyway, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, Flynn's kind of thrown off by that. And she's like, "Is but the rest of the world is real. And Wolf is like, well, not exactly. 
the RI has also created augmented reality to make the buildings that they haven't yet refurbished or rebuilt look complete. And he shows her how to turn off that part of the augmented reality. And a bunch of the buildings, the huge, beautiful buildings, you turn it off and they're just like completely wrecked husks of buildings. Oh, yeah. The city is trash. Yeah, the city is complete shit. And Flynn is like, if the RI is doing this out in the open, what the hell are they doing in secret? And I think that's a good question. That is an extremely observant and insightful question in the situation that they're in. Like, wow, they told you guys they did this? Like, uh, what else we got? Because that is absolutely insane. So they leave this area and they go on a little walk and talk on their way to a butcher shop. And Flynn tells Wilf about how Sharice said that Flynn copied data from her that night. And she's going to keep trying to kill Flynn until she gets it back. And Wilf is kind of like, okay, well, the fabricator we're going to can maybe help with that. He's the one who fabricated the peripherals for Alita. And Flynn wants to know how do we know that? And they tracked down this fabricator based off of the little like insert that he pulled out of the dead peripherals. Right. The CPUs that were in those. Yeah. And so Flynn is like, do I have one of those in me? And Wolf's like, yeah, you, you do. And this triggers Flynn to postulate an idea. Flynn says that she felt something when Alita pressed her eye to that thing, the the inverted pyramid in the Godfont room, and asks if Alita could have downloaded data into her stub. And Wolf is like, well, theoretically she could if she had something in Flynn's world to download it into. And Flynn is like, oh, what could it be? And Wolf's like, only Alita could tell us because like, I don't fucking know. Alita's just always got her own thing going on, dude. Don't try to explain her. Like we, we don't ask too many questions, Flynn, because Alita makes no sense. She really doesn't. And it's one of my favorite things about her. I absolutely love her. I love her so much. So they arrive at a butcher shop. Flynn and Wilf walk in. And the butcher's like, oh, what can I get for you? And Wilf asks for a toad in the hole. Don't know what that means, but as you do... And the butcher named Reggie and the lady there, Abigail, share like a really heavy look. And they're like, we don't carry that. Pork's on sale today. Wolf's like, we really had our heart set on toad in the hole. And (laughs) Abigail just kind of like grabs a knife, leans up on the counter, brandishing this knife. And is like, why don't you guys look like a lovely couple? Why don't you get the fuck out of here before somebody gets hurt? But of course, of course, Flynn knows how, like, men builders get. So she appeals to his competitive side and was like, oh, the one that created this one, like, says it's obviously better than anything you could make. So I made a bet to find out what was going on. And mm, yeah, but obviously you're not playing along. So you say his competitiveness. I say his his fragile male ego. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Oh, and he's like, he's like, hmm, I can get your money back. Closes down the shop, takes him into the back where he starts inspecting peripheral Flynn. And he basically says that he can get her money back pretty easily. And he's like, oh, and I have this new addition that I'm super excited about. It's titanium fingernails that are retractable. You could claw your way out of a stone building. He just made like a lame Wolverine. (laughs) I'm like, okay, that happened in comic books a lot. Titanium? Don't have adamantium? Yeah, I know, right? But Flynn plays. She's like, well, I'm more interested in eyes. And he's like, anybody can fabricate eyes. Like, that's what do you want? Night vision, heat vision any superpowers, anything you can think of from comic books we can do. And she's like, well, what if I wanted to replace an eye? And he's like, what do you mean? And she's like, with a human eye. And at that, both Reggie and Abigail like start attacking. (laughs) They lose their shit. And that's the moment you're immediately like, well, they know what Alita's been doing. (laughs) It's like, wow, way to not play it cool at all, losers. (laughs) Yeah, so then it becomes extremely obvious 
how Alita was involved with them, and they definitely did make her peripherals. These fights are insane. They're so enjoyable. They really are. Man, I mean, Abigail was like to the death. That's where that was the point that she got to. But Reggie finally is just like, oh my God, whatever. Abigail, just stop. Like, stop doing this. We're clearly losing. Not before Abigail spits blood into Flynn's face. Oh, gross. Which is just gross. That is gross. How rude. So after Reggie's just like, okay, give it up. Like, we're not winning this. Just let it go. Wilf pulls up, a, using finger magic, pulls up a picture of Alita and is like, tell me about her. And he's like, hesitant to talk. So Flynn is like, Reggie, start talking or I start cutting. And he's like, yeah, well, what do you think they're going to do to me? And they're like, who? And he goes, the neoprims. Bom, bom, bom. Which at this point, I still feel like the show hasn't explained. Nope, the show has not told us what neoprims are, but it's apparently a really big deal. <laughs> yeah, so as we quote unquote spoiled last week, that is the group who decided to forget this technology business because it caused a lot of problems to start with. And so it's pointed out like they're the only ones that know how to do surgery because everybody else just uses all the technology. So with that, Wilf looks like his entire world has been shattered because Alita is working with neoprims and he is a murderer of neoprims and it's a whole big thing. So as they leave, Wilf stops Flynn and he's like, you can't go out like that. And he grabs his little kerchief and he starts wiping the dried blood, not off her face. He just starts wiping it. He's smearing it everywhere. <laughs> he's like, he's not doing anything. He's making it worse, if anything. He's trying to use it like blush. <laughs> he yeah. puts it on her face. It's like, maybe if we, like, you, you went really crazy with the blush on this one side of your face. <laughs> yeah, it, he definitely did not clean it, like, even a little bit. And Flynn is like, why didn't you tell me that Alito's with the neoprims? And he's like, I didn't know. And then as he's not doing anything to help the blood on face situation, Flynn stops him and grabs his hand. And he's like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, you guys have the weirdest relationship. Truly, the, the dynamic that's going on there is it's getting a little deeper, also a little stranger. <laughs> yeah, it's getting deeper and weirder. And I think I'm feeling less comfortable with it the more it progresses. Yeah, maybe so. So we leave 2100 and we head back to 2032 where Connor is leaving Jimmy's Bar and Liquor. And he goes to hook up his cool ass wheelchair thing to his little trikey. Yeah, his uh, Dark Knight trike. <laughs> yeah, his, his, little, his little Dark Knight trikey. But there's something wrong and his wheelchair won't connect to it. And there's nobody around. So he's like pissed. So we cut to him working on it with his one arm and like try like trying to fix it. And the poor guy. And then we cut to Macon, who is leaving Kinko's and like biking over. And he's like, okay, he's like, just just pretend like you're just you're just on your way and you see him. Just like it'll be fine. And so he does that. He shows up and he's like, Oh, hey, Connor. And he's like, Did they call you? <laughs> Like, they don't even have the decency to come outside and let me know they're going to bring someone in. Well, no, they don't have the decency to come outside and help themselves. They call Macon uh, on over. Well, I mean, I think that part was a good decision. But, like, they could have at least warned Connor. That's what they were yeah. doing. And Connor is like, okay, fine, you can help me. And then he starts grilling him about, oh, so you know the tech that Flynn and Burton are using. And Megan's like, I, I don't know if I can talk. He's like, I've been there. I've been to the future. I know what's up. And I'm mm -hmm. like, at what point did we write in Megan and the other nerdy dude at Kinko's on the future shit? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we had him doing the hacking, but they wouldn't have had to know. That they were hacking with the future. Right. They wouldn't have had to know that. I mean, whatever. That kid, and I say kid, even though he's probably like in his 20s, but he carries himself like he's much younger he is so cute and he is so scared that he might say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing in front of connor but this is what we had already been talking about as the theory 
And now he is just blatantly saying it out loud as much as he can. Connor wants this to be his life. He wants to permanently go into a peripheral and they're like, well, what are you going to do about your body back here? And he's like, when I was, you know, in the hospital after I got blown up, I lived, I had a catheter to pee. I had a feeding tube and I had an IV for fluids. He's like, that's all I need. Just hook me up and send me to the future. And, and Megan's like, no offense, but that's a terrible idea. Yeah. it. He basically is saying like, can you just put me in a coma and I'll just go live out my life in the future till I actually die? Which is depressing as shit. It's so depressing. And I just don't really think it's going to work out for him. No. But hey, that has the potential of being a really meaty story as we go on. It does. And after Macon tells him like, oh, this is, that's a bad idea. And he's like, maybe you think it's not possible or it's a bad idea because you've never imagined living in my body. How about you do that and then come back and tell me how it's impossible? Oh my gosh, that was, it's a really good argument, first of all. But I love how he actually appealed to make its intelligence. He's like, he pretty much, like, you're the best we got, dude. So I think if you really thought about it for a second, you could see where I was coming from. And existentially, that was a really good way of speaking back to Megan. It was. It was It was really good dialogue. It was a really, really good scene. And then we cut to one of the creepier scenes in the episode. We cut to 2100 briefly, where Ash is using her like magic eight ball of the future to make a peripheral of Connor while Burton's peripheral is soaking in a nutrient bath. And she's like matching up and like getting his DNA and like getting all the facial features right. And they're in like this weird like nutrient bath tank, this like 3D printer of like organic matter is printing organic matter on top of like a robotic skeleton. It's really creepy. Yeah. So Connor is like being created. The visuals on that though are super sweet. No, the process was really cool, but also kind of creepy because you see like half of Connor formed and the other half yet to be formed. So it's the technology is super cool. The visuals were super cool. The entire idea of the process a little creepy. Oh, super creepy. Yeah, absolutely. But the uh, cinematography, or shall I say, like the visual effects were really impressive. Oh, yeah. That's that's where the money went. It didn't go to that say. landfill. It went to that scene. <laughs> they had to save it on the landfill to be able to get this peripheral made. And then we go to Dee Dee's clinic where she's checking out Tommy and doing like an eye scan. And Tommy has like a flashback to the accident and freaks out. And she's like, bro, you're concussed. And he's like, well, I got to get back and do this. And she's like, you're supposed to be on a leave of absence. He's like, I can't. That was my arrest. I let him get away. Like, it's my job. It's my job. And Dee Dee's just like, how about you take a leave of absence? My contract is almost over at the clinic. Therefore, we can just, like, get the fuck out of this town. Yeah, because, like, maybe this isn't the best place to live with Corbell Pickett, like, blatantly running things and doing shady shit, like, right in public. Well, and I think that Tommy told her that the sheriff who's in Corbell's pocket is the one that caused the accident. And she's like, look, he's a scorpion. He's already stung you. Like, next time you're not going to be so lucky. I love that they use the scorpion and the frog thing, which was like a thread the entire way through season four of Killing Eve. And yet on that show, it made no sense. <laughs> Here it made sense. It really did. We'll take the metaphor this time. Not quite like the toast house which didn't really work <laughs> yeah we'll take this metaphor the the, the three-walled toast house with a ceiling that didn't fit the metaphor didn't didn't do it for us but speak of corbell bob wakes up in corbell's house where him and mary are debating whether corbell took his meat roast out of the oven too early or not and they're just like the most psychotic couple and I love them. They it's so weird. Like they're worrying about and discussing the most normal trivial things and yet they have a felon sitting at the table with a shock collar on. And Bob comes too and is a little confused and Corbell has just finished slicing up some of this 
this meat roast. It looked really good, by the way. It looked fucking delicious. I was like, I'll come over to Corbell's house for dinner. Shit. Yeah, I'll even take the shot collar. Just give me that steak. Give me that steak. I won't stab you with a steak knife. But Bob is not as excited about this situation as we would be. Because he comes to, and Corbell's like pouring out three glasses of wine. So they're going to wine and dine this Bob guy with a shot collar on. And he's like, oh, try the roast. It's really good. And Bob is like really confused. But he does have a steak knife. He goes to stab Corbell not realizing that he has a shock collar on. And so Mary just zaps him. I mean, and then Corbell steps up and is like, oh, that was like only a four. And she's like, it was a three. That was a four out of 10. And she was like, no, it was actually just a three. And he's like, ooh, ooh, you're in trouble. So yeah, Bob is, uh, <laughs> Bob's in a predicament. Bob is, is literally shocked into submission. Yeah. And Corbell's like, eat the fucking roast. Except he doesn't. He says it very cheerily. But the uh, subtext is, eat the fucking roast. And so Bob starts shoveling it into his mouth. And I was like, it's good. And Corbell goes into metaphor mode, where he talks about, there are different ways of preparing roast. He's like, I prefer brine. Because you can control it. And you control how like how the meat comes out. There's There's less variables that are uncontrolled. He's like, and when somebody comes and fucks with my brine, I get angry. And basically he's saying, Bob, who hired you because you came into my town and fucked with my shit. And now I need to know who hired you because this is my town. True. And in other cases, he might not care, you know, a ton if really the fishers were just to disappear or whatever. And nobody knew who did it. It's kind of like whatever. But we also do remember they're giving him 200 grand a week right now. So he's been called to do the hit. He did not do the hit. He's taking bunches of money. This guy is stepping on his own turf and he's threatening his livelihood. Yes. Bob is not in a good place right now. Bob is on the struggle bus and he looks like shit because he that car accident did both him and Tommy in real good. Yes, it did. And now he's getting shocked and falling off chairs. So that's going well for him. <laughs> so he's not doing great. Then we jump over to Burton's trailer where Connor and Leon are hanging out. And Leon tells Connor that Burton told him about the nightmare. And he's like, dude, let me offload some of that for you. And Connor's like, no, man. No, it's like, it's my shit. I got it. And we finally learn what this offloading actually means because... Leon beats Connor into submission and agreeing to this offloading by torture via his terrible singing. <laughs> hey, that is completely understandable. <laughs> he's like, oh, he's like, I'll just sing you to sleep then. And he starts singing and I'm like, oh my God, just take whatever he's offering. It's Stop literally it. so bad. And we had theorized about that a little earlier, not specifically in reference to offloading. We didn't necessarily know what that was, but we made the point when Burton had been going through so much pain, like we asked, I wonder if that's his pain or Connor's pain because of the way all of them are linked. So clearly if he's offloading specifically on Leon, they can link, you know, maybe less of them. I mean, I assume not all the other guys were out getting hurt and Leon has been the one doing that for him. But yeah, basically it's a transfer of energy that literally like takes certain parts of Connor's pain or PTSD away. And then, I mean, he went right to sleep. Well, and we see it, and it's so fucking visceral. Oh, it's awful. Because Leon, like, links up the haptics, and he flashes back, and it's it's Connor right after the explosion, and he's yelling about, my leg, don't take my legs, and he's just screaming, and Leon falls to the floor and is, like, grabbing his legs, he's grabbing his arm, he, like, is completely out of it, and then... You see, as Leon is, like, living through this torment, Connor slowly nods off to a peaceful sleep. And I was like, did Leon not know this was going to happen? Like, is this more intense than usual? But then Leon gets up after it's passed, and he just smiles and looks at Connor asleep and is like, yeah, I done good. That dude is true blue, like, all the way through. Yeah. That is a huge deal to do for somebody. And not to do it in a situation where it, seems called for you know i mean he he volunteers to do this yeah to help his friend out right now we get to the good part of the episode ash is finishing connor's peripheral and asian walks in as the ai takes over connor's peripheral and he's like 
it's always weird when the AI takes over and Ash is like, oh, she said something. What did she say? Like the God moment? Like the moment that life is born? Yes. Another terrible use of such things in Killing Eve season four. It is a <laughs> reference directly to the painting, the creation of Adam, where God reaches out and touches his hand and and transfers life in, in the process of creation. And they used it just absolutely ridiculously in Killing Eve. And I'm in a mood today, so we're going to talk about how bad that was. This is much more relevant and works. And this is how you do <laughs> imagery comparison. Uh, it, yeah, it, it actually works. As they're chit-chatting, and Ossian's like, I find it just weird. The doorbell rings. And Ash and Ossian aren't just the technicals that assist with this peripheral nonsense. They're also the help. Yeah, they're essentially like the, the footmen or little butlers. <laughs> so, so Ossian rushes to the door and he opens it. And guess who it is? It is Inspector Lobier and Beatrice, and Lobier is like, hello, I'm here to see Mr. Netherton and Lev Zubov. And he's like, oh, fuck. And he like, he like asks him, I guess, to wait for a moment because he bursts into the dining room where Lev and Wilf are having a meal. And he's like, the, ins the inspector's here from the Metropolitan Police. And Love is like, call my father's solicitors right away. And he's like, the phone isn't working. Poor Ossian. He is so awkward. He needs a fucking Xanax. And then a hug. And possibly to be swaddled <laughs> with yeah. a blanket. <laughs> he is not doing well. He's really not. Now, I found it strange that Lev said to call his father's solicitors. We don't know anything about Lev's father being alive. And even if he was, I would expect, you know, that Lev has tons of attorneys. I found it interesting that that was put in there. And I feel like it's on purpose. I think so, too. It seems like he's the rich kid running around playing shenanigans and he just got in trouble and his dad's going to get him out of trouble with the cops. Exactly. And so Ossian's like, what should I do? He's like, well, let them in. It would be rude and suspicious if you didn't. Yeah, you can't just like leave them standing outside. And so Lev pours himself a shot of presumably vodka and takes it and warns Wilf. He's like, whatever you do, do not lie to them because they already know the answers to their questions. Which, okay, that's interesting. One, I didn't know if it was just kind of taking off on the interrogation tactic of never ask a question you don't know the answer to. Or if Beatrice and Lobier have some sort of technology. I don't know, but I am interested to find out. Yeah, for sure. I'd like to see kind of what they're playing at because everyone seems really put off by them being there in a very like nervous scared energy before we get to that scene which is just chef's kiss perfection we go back to poor tommy poor poor tommy he shows up at the fisher's property and burton meets him and is like what you doing here buddy and tommy admits to him that he lost bob and Burton's like, you had one fucking job, bro. You didn't do it. And he's like, look, I think Corbell Pickett's involved because of reasons. Like the sheriff had something to do with it, which means Corbell's involved. Burton's like, a fucking course. And Tommy's like, what do you mean? And Burton's like, dude, seriously, stop poking around this and like leave it completely alone. Because the next time an ambush happens or somebody tries to kill us, you're probably going to end up dead. And let's just hope that's not foreshadowing. That's a Chekhov's statement. <laughs> because I do not need such things to happen to my sweet Tommy who refuses to leave town because it's where he grew up. And he gave the, the Fishers his word that he would handle Bob. It's a lot. And Burton just kind of walks off and leaves Tommy to be like, I'm so confused. But we cut to a scene that proves that the sheriff and Corbell are in cahoots because Corbell is visiting the sheriff in his office and talking about how Tommy's become a liability. And the sheriff's like, ah, don't worry about it. I put him on like paid leave. Like he's, he's not going to be an issue anymore. But if Corbell were interested in watching the footage of what Bob told Tommy before the accident, you know, there's two password authentication 
And Corbell just kind of looks at him like, bitch, give me the password. And the sheriff's just like, fuck you and eat shit. All caps. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of love that because it gives him the, I mean, okay, he's shady and I hate him, but it purposely gives him the opportunity to say that to someone he probably means it toward. Because obviously, you know, he's in Corbell's pocket. Or should I say, Corbell is like digging in his. I mean, he clearly Corbell is like basically in charge of everything. So that includes the uh, crooked sheriff. So the fact that he essentially passive aggressively got to say that to him with no consequence. Maybe he's a little smarter than I thought. Not by much, but a little bit. Yeah, I mean, just enough to be a dick. So Corbell's viewing the footage of Bob's monologue to Tommy. And back at Corbell's mansion, Mary is sitting on the couch with Bob across from her in an armchair, painting her nails, and going on and on about how she made a bet with Corbell that she couldn't get him to talk. And if she could get him to talk, she would get this beautiful baby blue convertible that she's had her eye on. And Bob is like trying to assess how the fuck to get out of the situation. And so there's a giant fish tank and he's like, okay, he's like, I can give a little here. And it's like, is that a salt water? And Mary turns to the tank and is like, oh, all you men, salt water must be a man thing because Corbell wanted one, blah, 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 blah. And while she is distracted and rambling about a fish tank, Bob quickly grabs what seems to be like a paperweight off of the table, like a metal paperweight. Mm-hmm. Sort of knickknack if it's not that. Uh, some knickknack that has some heft to it. Sure. And it turns out the tank is actually fresh water because she made it so. Then after a second, he's like, oh, can I look at it? And she's like, oh, of course, go ahead. So he takes the paperweight, smashes the tank twice, gets shocked, goes as a tea kettle onto the ground and she's like, now, why would you do something like that? And then the fish tank cracks and then it breaks and a like a tidal wave of water knocks Mary off her feet and she lands next to Bob. Okay. When it started shattering, did you feel like she had ample time to move? <laughs> she had like a solid 15 seconds. <laughs> I mean, she was just, I mean, I guess, you know, fight, flight, freeze, whatever. That's what she, she froze. did. But she... <laughs> had ample time to prevent this occurrence this disaster if you will where she and bob both end up on the floor soaked as can be and she then shocks him but not before he grabs onto her leg so that the cycle of electricity is just going through both of them until they pass out But Bob, having a higher constitution than dear sweet Mary, his eyes open before hers do, and we don't know what happens because we cut away. But we can certainly expect that to get a little bit funky. Maybe Bob becomes entertaining at some point. We can only hope. We can dream. We didn't get any feedback from anyone saying that Bob's important, so I really wish somebody would tell me if that's the case. Or if he's like an amalgamation of multiple characters that for some reason I need to care about. Because right now we don't care about Bob. No, he's just not doing it for me. But I'll tell you who is. <laughs> Lobier. Fucking Inspector Lobier. <laughs> she is now sitting in Lev's li- living room with Wilf. Or she's not sitting. Lev is sitting. Wilf is sitting across from him. Ash is standing behind Lev. And Ossian is shaking like a leaf. <laughs> He he needs to be held so desperately. He needs to be swaddled seriously. He does. That's my that's my thought on Ossian so far. Super smart guy, very accomplished in that way, can handle lots of things, needs swaddling. Well, Lobier, as Ossian comes to pour her tea and is shake like the tray that he's carrying is like rattling like crazy because he is shaken like a leaf. And she's like, oh, Ossian, whatever his last name is. Oh, you have done so well for yourself. So much trouble in your youth. And and look at you now. <laughs> it's like, Yikes. oh, so she knows everything about all of them. Hey, and like props to that actor for shaking it enough that it appeared to be shaking, but like not spilling everything. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was really impressive. We like to just, you know, point out those small things. 
And Ash is in the background, wide-eyed, more wide-eyed than usual. <laughs> yeah, she's usually pretty flippant about everything. But Lobeer basically says, because Love's like, I think that we should really call my father solicitors. And she's like, oh, well, we could totally do that. It's up to you. But if we do that, then I would have to arrest Mr. Netherton here for the murder of Daniel Cook. And we would have to have his trial right away, which would inevitably end in his execution here in your living room. You've known each other for a long time, haven't you? I mean, what a threat. She's like, okay, so if you don't want to have a conversation, then I suppose we could just kill that guy right now. No big deal. I mean, like, ball in her court, for sure. Yeah, and she just, like, closes out the conversation. Is like, there are three peripherals on site. I would like to see them. And their controllers. And it's just like, womp womp. Yeah, because one of them has a controller, a.k.a. Flynn. But the other two we know that Ash has been building have, let's call them future newbies. They're future newbies. In which they are going to have no idea how to act in this situation. And when we get to it, it's really funny. So as they presumably go to contact the past to get... Flynn, Burton, and Connor into their peripherals. Burton shows up at Connor's house. We'll first see a montage of Connor making himself French toast for breakfast. And it is very, I mean, they spend a long time with how Connor makes breakfast. He's like throwing things in the garbage can from across the room, like throwing eggs in the pan, throwing bread, doing all this stuff from sitting on the floor. The things that he's learned to do are beyond impressive. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting scene and it really gives you an insight into how Connor lives on his own and has made it work. He even invites Burton to have some French toast when he comes over, which how do you turn down French toast? Yeah, seriously. What is wrong with him? Connor hears somebody pull up, so he naturally grabs a gun and drags himself outside armed. And when he sees it's Burton... He's like, look, man, I just made myself breakfast and you dragged me out here because I thought I had to kill you. (laughs) Go inside and fetch my breakfast. So Burton is carrying a giant box from Kinko's, leaves it on the porch, goes and gets the French toast for Connor and basically explains that the future sent blueprints for Kinko's to print out so that Connor had legs. But Flynn. But sweet Flynn. She's been designing and printing them for years. And trying to perfect them so that they like work for him. And you can tell that Connor really, really appreciates the effort. But he also says point blank, I don't want them because me putting legs on is more for you people than it is for me. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I feel like it was a really good assertion that he made of like... I didn't ask for that. Like, if I can have a full body, if I can be a full person, great. But if you're just trying to give me some sort of, like, crutch, then it's just for you. Because you pity me. And you know how it, he's always back to that pity thing. He can't stand it. He's He's got some issues. Well, Burton brings up, he's like, oh, you know, like, your plan to live in the future with the whole IV feeding tube catheter thing. It's a bad idea. It's not going to work. Okay. Side note. When they're talking about the whole MF thing. Yeah. And how they used to tell their mom, you know, it meant my friend when clearly it's like motherfucker. At this point, and I didn't catch it. I don't, I still don't know if they explained it. The WH was also on there. And that was what I told you I saw on the sheet of paper that Burton left on Connor when he was passing out drunk. So it must be some sort of thing from their friendship because they didn't say right yeah right they didn't say they started talking about the mf but they didn't mention the wh so book readers if that's something that is a book reference that we don't know let us know yeah because it seems like something that just got placed into the show but i i don't it it seems like it could be an easter egg i definitely don't expect it to be something that gets explained at this point yeah but I, I just, I clocked it again. I was like, wait, WH, that's what I saw on the paper he left. And I was like, we don't know anyone with like the initials of WH and like where I know 
exactly what MF means. When I see it, I don't immediately connect that to anything either. So I'm still curious about it. Well, so Burton is like, hey, try out the legs. Like, wh- wh- He's like, I'm, I'll consider your weird live in the future plan, but you should try out the legs. And Connor's like, I don't feel like it today. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. So Burton goes to leave, but ring-a-ding-ding, the future's calling. And that's exactly what it sounds like. So these two boys just, excuse me, I'll back up for a second and say these two men, and I need to say it that way so I can clarify, become boys who are like Christmas morning excited. Meanwhile, Flynn is just kind of amused by their excitement because she's like, it's not that great. She's an old hat at this. Like, it's at this point, she's like, oh my goodness, I can't wait for you guys to get in here and see how crappy that future is. Good for yeah, you. The future is shit. <laughs> this is not any better than what you're leaving. In fact, it's worse. So they all, what did you say last time? They, they pulled into their peripheral. <laughs> Because, sure. Just making up terminology. And Connor and Burton are, like, super weird, like, looking at themselves. I feel like someone in Lobier's position would be able to look at them and tell that they're first-timers. Well, I think that Connor holds it together a little bit better. He's like, where am I? What's going on? Whereas Burton is, like, looking at his arm, <laughs> looking around the room, looking at Flynn, looking at Connor. <laughs> And Flynn is just standing there like, what fresh hell have I walked into this time? (laughs) So nobody has any time to debrief. Nobody can tell Flynn, Burton, Connor what's going on, how they should act, who's in front of them. It's like Lobier is the one that takes over the scene and then we're the ones left hanging. Yeah, because she walks up and she's like, oh, you must be Flynn Fisher. I'm Inspector Lobier. And that's the end of the episode. (laughs) And we already know it's not even a good thing that she knows who Flynn is. No. But but I will say that what what we did gloss over before they fully jumped into the peripherals was Lobier is like, oh, so you access these people. You can talk to the past and access these people. And what do you call it? A stub? Oh, that sounds so rather primitive. And (laughs) Ash is like, it's better than like... Fuck, what did Ash say? It sounds short, nasty, brutish. One wouldn't expect the Fork's new branch to continue to grow. We do assume exactly that. I'm not I'm not sure that term really fits. And then Ash just goes, imperialism. It sounds better than imperialism. <laughs> oh my goodness. Ash has been holding herself back. <laughs> Homegirl's been sitting on some stuff. And granted, like, you can tell, like, why how she defines it as imperialism. Like, she seems to have some sort of moral hiccups about what they're doing. Because she is the one in, in the previous episode when Flynn is like, I need to know what happened to the future. And she's like, well, f- she deserves to know. She's the one that breaks. Right. And I think that. Part of it, it's because she's she's an Alita type chick, you know, bad on the outside, but she's got that gooey center. Now, she does not have the psycho part, which makes her only slightly less interesting. But I think that she's fully aware of what Flynn's being asked to do and probably can put herself into those shoes of like, if somebody wanted all this from me, what would it take for me to actually get on board and understand what was going on? Yeah. And I appreciated that. I feel like there's a little more empathy in Ash than she wants anyone to think. There's a lot more empathy in Ash. Ash is quickly becoming one of my favorite characters. I like her a lot. I hope that she gets a more prominent role because I think there's a lot that can be done with her. Like, let's get an Ash Flynn team up. Ooh, that would actually be super fun. So, Lobier, one of the most comically terrifying characters. I've ever come across because it's very much like, ooh, I totally want you on my screen. Say all the things. Run this conversation the way you are. Make everyone, please, that uncomfortable. She does it in a different way than Sharice. Because Sharice just, like, exudes fear. She reminds me of the character that Roma Mafia played on Pretty Little Liars, where a complete foil to your characters in every way and knows it. Yes, she comes in 
they're backfooted immediately. They are not prepared for this in any way. And she's coming in with knowledge that we already don't know how she got, which means she knows way more than she's letting on. I love when a character is so, it's like they're comically evil because they know everything and they know that they know everything. So they're just getting to sit there and like wait to see how everyone reacts to it. And and the, and like the actress who plays Lobier, she's just like chewing up all the scenery and every scene she's in. Like she's just fucking devouring everything. It's truly so good. Her movements and the way she f- kind of flows through the scene. It's just like, look at me. <laughs> oh, I know that other person's talking, but seriously, look at me. Alexandra Billings is who plays Lobier, and just like Bravo, amazing, nailing it. Like. A presence. It is so good. Cannot speak. I'm so excited for the next episode and seeing what fresh hell she brings upon our little team here. Yeah, because now you've got essentially, so in there you've got Lev, you've got Wilf, you've got Ash Ossian. Now Flynn, Connor, Burton, all of them against kind of like that's, a, I don't know that that's the perfect word to use, but against Lobier and Beatrice, and this is our standoff. Well, I'm wondering, is it really against Lobier, or is Lobier like, oh, Ari is doing some shit, and we're going to use you as a way to flush out Charisse? Or is she true? Because she seems a little too like passe about the whole, oh, so you're communicating with the past, I see. Mm, interesting. Mm. Yeah, as if that's news to anybody. <laughs> yeah. What I want is for Lowbeer to be like, okay, you guys are from the past. You guys have no leverage. You're fucking with the future. You got to work for me, and we're going to like fuck up Charisse's shit. Yeah, that is totally an option. That's totally an option. To me, the other... Okay, is she part of the Met Police? Yeah, she's an inspector with the Metropolitan Police. That's what I thought it was, because up till this point, I thought, and I mean, there's not necessarily any other reason to believe one way or the other, but I thought the Met Police was just the coids. I did too, but there is apparently a human, unless she is a peripheral. But no, there's a person behind a peripheral. So no, there are people behind the, the Metropolitan Police. The coids are just like, apparently... They're just the patrol officers. Yeah, it's just like parking tickets, essentially. Sorry, that's an unregistered peripheral. I'm going to have to write yeah, you a ticket for that. Exactly. Little, little ticket writers. So, I mean, that's it. That's what we got. And some of it is, like, they've laid such an exquisite table that we're now sitting at. And I feel like if we don't start serving food, it's going to get cold. And we're going to get hangry. Did that metaphor work? <laughs> Since we it had- worked better than the toast with the three walls and a <laughs> metaphorical roof that didn't work. We are never going to let that go, Sharice. 100% not letting that go. But yeah, I mean, I all the pieces. Well, you know what? I say that every time, though. Like The pieces, the players, they're all in. But This whole episode was about bringing in someone new. And I was like, oh, no, you're a big deal. So it's it's like every episode we think we understand the game board. And then this show is kind of like playing chess with a pigeon. Just when you think that you're winning, it shits on the board and knocks all the pieces (laughs) over. Exactly. But what if this was my next move and sets the board on fire? Yeah. this, like this show, like we're like, okay, we understand the players. We understand. Let's like, let's get to. And they're like, oh, you thought that that was the game we're playing? You thought we were playing checkers, bitch? It's chess. Yeah, I feel like they're actually having to introduce the correct number of chess players, though. At this point, yeah, <laughs> or, or pieces on the board. Well, hopefully, next episode. <laughs> They serve us at least some fucking soup and salad. Yeah, can I get an appetizer over here? My, my. We don't need to get to the main course. That can that can be for the last episode. That can be for the finale. But, like, give us something to eat because we are going to start a riot if we don't get some nourishment. I know because I, I so desperately wish that we were back in the times of just full season episodes. I mean, I want to see 22 of this. Oh my god, I would devour 22 episodes of this. We've got two left. We don't know if there's a season two. I mean, and I'm like 
on the edge of my seat here. I need to know what happens. And I also need a season two because I feel like they can't give, they can't put a bow on this in two hours. No, no, not one that fits the present, if you will. (laughs) Well, not one that fits the beautiful, tangled, fucked up web that they have woven. Okay, there you go. So there's a, yeah, there's a gift and there's no way they have enough wrapping paper. Let's just keep making really bad. Are we just keep, are we going to keep metaphoring? We're going to keep <laughs> metaphoring until we. <laughs> until it gets as bad as a three walled house. <laughs> it's going to take a long time for us to get as bad as a three walled house with a metaphorical roof. <laughs> that doesn't stand for anything except chaos. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we need to stop talking. <laughs> we really do. It's intensely <laughs> terrible. So. This will come out. It'll be Thanksgiving Day in America. Celebrate something besides colonialism. But like, yeah, be thankful for stuff. And then Seven comes out very, very soon. And I mean, just like always, we can't wait to be back. I am so excited for Seven. And because it's a long weekend, I'm going to watch it like eight times. It's going to be great. (laughs) Absolutely. So thank you for listening and we'll see you soon. Bye.